Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. And when the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. They devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let's do it in that order. Let's pray. Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit now upon this people to give them hearts to hear and to meet their needs. If there are any here, Lord, who do not trust Christ as Lord and Savior, would you persuade them irresistibly that he is worthy and that forsaking him another hour is infinitely dangerous? And would you build our church and overcome obstacles to the spread of the gospel and grant that there would be such liberty and such freedom and anointing and obedience that the word of God runs and is glorified. Come and do your work now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of Luke's purposes in writing the book of Acts is to celebrate and to document the spread of the church, the increase of the number of Christians, disciples, day after day after day, after Jesus had gone back to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to empower his church. You can see this as a focus in the book if you just run through and pick out all the places, there are ten of them at least, where he says this sort of thing. Let me, without having you look up all of these, just run through some of them to give you a flavor of the repeated emphasis in the book of Acts on the growth in the numbers of disciples in the early church. Acts 2.41. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day 3,000 souls. 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. Chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It was multiplied. 1349. And the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region of Pisidia. Chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily in the region of Galatia. 
Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. Now, I assume that since Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit who loves us and cares about us, that it's good for us to hear about that. It's good to hear that news. But not everybody believes that today. I mean, if you, if you say things like that, the church is growing, it is multiplying. Disciples are being added to the Lord in China, in Indonesia, in Cuba, in the USSR. There is a faction that always kind of says, well, don't get your emphasis on numbers or don't get triumphalist or... And, of course, those warnings are okay in their place. But if they rise to the level where you can't even hear the word of God as something glorious and positive and helpful and encouraging, something's gone awry inside those souls. Clearly, the spirit of Luke, guided by God, is that this is a wonderful way to celebrate the work of the risen Lord Jesus. You remember Acts 1.1? The first book, O Theophilus, the gospel, was what Jesus began to do and to teach. And now the book of Acts is what Jesus goes on doing and teaching. So that when Luke, again and again, ten times, tells us that many people were added to the Lord, what he's saying is, Jesus reigns. The Holy Spirit has come. Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. And people are being empowered to witness effectively. To the Lord. And when we hear stories in the Bible and outside the Bible to that effect, we ought to be glad. Now, it was not a pure movement. This wonderful movement that he documents, it wasn't pure. It was mixed. It was doctrinally aberrant at places. It was morally deficient in places. And I mention this because I am fearful that some people sometimes myself included, are bent on idealizing the church in Acts, taking that false ideal and measuring contemporary Christian movements by it and passing judgment on them in an excessively critical way. Let me illustrate from the book of Acts what I mean by this imperfection. In the uh, movement in Jerusalem, there was the deceitful Ananias and Sapphira. There was the power-hungry Simon, the magician in the Samaritan Movement. There was the uh, fearful, retreating John Mark in the missionary band. There was the doctrinally confused Apollos in the Ephesian, Asian movement. There were those professing Christians in Ephesus that for weeks and perhaps months hid the fact that they were practicing black magic. And only after the sons of Sceva got run out of the house did they get all scared and bring their books out and burn them. I mean, this movement was imperfect. And you know what Jesus said to tell us that was going to happen? He said, the kingdom of God is like a net thrown into the sea that gathers in... Do you remember what? Christians, right? That gathers in all kinds of fish. And later, the good and the bad are separated. When the Holy Spirit drives a movement... The movement gathers debris. Now, that complicates things for us. You know, this is the explanation for this troubling text in Hebrews 6 that causes those of us who believe that when God saves a person, they stay saved. 
Because that Hebrews 6 says there are people who have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the powers of the age to come and they make shipwreck of faith, fall away and are destroyed. Now, what's going on there? It's not hard to understand what's going on there when you read the book of Acts. What's going on there is that when the supernatural power of God breaking in from the age to come, gathering a movement, it gathers all kinds of fish. And those bad fish in the net are being affected by the Holy Spirit. A lot of them are excited about the Holy Spirit. They're all excited about healings or about wonders. And yet they have no brokenness because of sin. They have no love for holiness. The Holy Spirit is touching, but not transforming. Now, that's very important to realize. Because if we don't realize it, what we'll do is we'll idealize the church in the book of Acts. And then we will take that false ideal and we'll look at movements in China or in Cuba or someplace. And we'll say, oh, whoa, look at that mess. You know, that can't be of God. Well, if the Ephesian movement can be of God, it can be of God. Let me illustrate with uh, a story I read this week from Cuba about what's going on in Cuba, which thrilled my heart because I've been praying for Cuba, Mongolia, Albania, and North Korea for about a year and a half. The Lord has just laid those four lands. And I started adding Ethiopia because Wally Eschenauer told me I should to uh, my prayer list. So it's been fun to watch Albania in the newspaper and to read about the first church being established in uh, Mongolia and, uh, and now Cuba. Listen to this report. Before 1988, the Protestant church in Cuba, this comes from Pulse. It's a, a news magazine and it was quoting from the news network International. This is not a charismatic journal and yet it documents some elements of the charismatic dimension to this movement. Before 1988, the Protestant church in Cuba had between 100,000 and 250,000 believers. Today, after three years of revival, hundreds of thousands have been drawn into the church and attendance could be as high as one million. Now, I think Luke would write a sentence like that today. That's a, that's a Luke sentence. An observer says there may be 6,000 house churches formed by the end of the year. Characterized by healings and other miraculous signs, the movement has drawn large crowds to many churches, as well as the suspicion of some pastors and churches. One evangelist conducting healing services on the island nation was charged with practicing medicine without a license. Many young people have... Uh, been converted because of the revival, and now 70% of the country's church membership is under the age of 30, close quote. Now, I don't know much about that movement. I just read about it in Pulse last week. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. If I understand the spirit of Luke, who documents the growth of the church in the book of Acts, I think this, our spirit ought to be one of celebration when you read that. We ought to rejoice and say, praise God. He's moving in a communist land, another communist land. Instead of being so cautious and so fearful that I'm sure if I was there watching some of this stuff, I'd say, ew, what are they doing here? Why do you do it like that? You know, don't they see this in the Bible and don't they see that? And the point is, I would have done the same thing in Jerusalem and in Ephesus and Samaria. And in Corinth, 
and Thessalonica and Philippi and Rome. When the kingdom is gathering, it gathers debris. And some of those debris preach. <laughs> the desire to hear the movement of the spirit in the world today is a continuation of the spirit of the inspired Luke. Now, that's the first purpose that Luke has. He wants to document the astounding God-sent growth of the Christian movement right after Jesus left and went back to heaven and sent his spirit. Now, there is a second purpose, and I'm going to relate these two and show it to you in the text in a minute. There's a second purpose that Luke has, namely to show us the kind of obstacles that the movement ran into and how, by the grace of God, the church got over the obstacles and kept moving. Now, that's what this text is about today. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Let's notice the two purposes. First, I want you to see the purpose of Luke to celebrate the increase and growth of the church by beginning and ending the text on that note. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing, now stop right there, just don't miss that. The disciples were increasing. Now, jump to the end of the text, verse 7. See how he closes. And the word of God increased again now. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Sandwiched now between those two statements in which the growth of the church is documented and celebrated, what do you have in here? What, what is this? What's going on? What you have is the story of a threat to the movement. Increase, increase, threat, overcome. How? So what I want to do is see the threat. What was the nature of it? It had two parts. And how was it overcome? And then... Focus again as we close on Luke's celebration of what God did in response to a biblical settlement of a threat to the growth of the movement. The first part of the threat was a conflict between Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Hellenists and Hebrews. Now, a little background here. One of my younger sons said, uh, Hellenists, does, does that mean that, that these are the ones that are going to hell? Which is not a bad question for a... Ten-year-old, um, because there it stands, H-E-L-L, -L, right at the front, Hellenist, that's what you'd think. Well, the Greek word Hellenic means Greek, and so all this means is Greek-speaking Jews, okay? It has nothing to do with hell whatsoever. Got that straight? This is Greek-speaking Jews. Hebrews means Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Jews. Now, this is a major, major tension point in the early church because... Probably even before the Christian movement began, you had two kinds of synagogues in Jerusalem. We see this as you move down to verse 9 and notice that there's a synagogue of the freedmen and those from Cilicia. These are transports who speak Greek living in Jerusalem who just aren't culturally, ethnically quite at home with all these real Jews who only speak Aramaic. And so they set up their own synagogues probably. Now, the Christian movement hits town and people are gathered in from both groups and you've got trouble. Right? 
You've got language problems, you've got ethnic problems, you've got cultural problems, right from the word go. What I think was happening here was that the minority group, the Hellenistic group, uh, the, the system that had been set up in chapter 4, verse 34, to handle the poor, where people would sell their possessions, bring them to the apostles, get distributed, it wasn't working for the minority. It wasn't working for the Hellenists. Their widows were somehow missing out in the distribution. You see that in, in verse 1. The Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, that's a major threat to the Christian movement. Because if that were not solved, then the name of Christ would, would be dishonored. And you can see the, the priests and the Jews and others saying, yeah, right. Jesus taught love and Jesus taught compassion. and Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to give you power to take care of each other and to bear fruit, right? And you can't even take care of your own widows. This is a major issue. This is a major obstacle to the spread of the Christian movement. And so it had to be taken care of. Now, there's a second part to the threat, however. This one, I believe Luke would say, is a bigger one. And the threat is, the second part of the threat is, if you solve the first part, the first threat in the wrong way, you ruin everything. That's what's at issue here. Verse 2. The twelve summoned the body of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. Give up the word of God to serve tables. Now, isn't, that sort of sounds defensive, doesn't it? Why would he even suggest that it... Whoever said it was right? Why are you telling us it's not right? When I never told you it was right. Do you, do you hear what I hear? I hear the fact that someone was suggesting that would be a good idea. You apostles are the main men. You have power. You have influence. You can make this... Work. You can fix it. So quit gallivanting around town and spending so much time in the temple and in prayer and in meditation on the word and fix this thing. And what they meant was get down there and do it. Now, there's the second threat to the movement. And, and the apostles felt it as a massive threat to the movement. Luke agreed with them that it was a great threat. You can tell that Luke agrees because of the link-up between verse 2 and verse 7. In verse 2, he points out, by quoting the apostles, that leaving the word of God would be wrong. It would be a big mistake. And then you can look in verse 7 at that same phrase, word of God, to see how Luke celebrates the rightness of that choice, where he says, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. In other words, Luke is saying it was so right for the apostles not to serve tables, but to stand by the word and prayer, because look what the result was. A great spread of the word, many people gathered in, and a new breakthrough with the priests, even. So you got two threats. Threat number one, the widows are being ignored among the minority Hellenists. Threat number two, solve it by calling the ministers of the word to take care of it. Now, 
the apostles would not allow those two threats to play off against each other and bring destruction to the movement. They had another way to solve it. Thank the Lord. And they model for us something here. Verse 3 says that they told the church to appoint seven Hellenistic leaders. Actually, seven leaders who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And it turns out they appointed all Hellenists. Do you know that? Because all the seven names are Greek. There's not a local boy in the crowd. All the minority, in other words, was a very wise move on the part of the church. And these were to be set apart with hands-on to take care of whatever was necessary to make this work with the widows so that they got their distribution and they were taken care of. Meanwhile, the apostles would not leave the word in prayer, but would stand by it. So the two threats are overcome. The widows are cared for and the word is preserved and kept central. Now, Luke celebrates this. He's very, very happy about this solution, I believe, because either one of them could have undermined the work of the church. Now, let me just back off here a minute and say, by way of parenthesis, Bethlehem is right now in the midst of a governance transition. All voted in by the church last December, and the deacons are charged now with uh, commending to you for your approval and choosing a council of elders who will then be charged with, as it were, setting up whatever it takes to do this at Bethlehem, to make sure that every need is met, even down to the most practical, physical need of widows, that it's taken care of and not overlooked and not ignored and not considered to be unimportant. And then to preserve the centrality of the ministry of the word. One of the things that this text teaches me very strongly is that the great threats to the church in our day are anything that jeopardizes the centrality of the word. And, and now mark this. It's good. It's good threat. <laughs> I mean, James, remember James, the Lord's brother who wrote the book of James? He was probably here during this discussion. He wrote the book, James, chapter 2, verse 27, and said, uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. That's true religion. So I can imagine James maybe being among the number and saying to the apostles, that he knows really well. Guys, I believe the Spirit is teaching me that true religion is not to go around preaching, but to get down, humble yourselves like Jesus did with the towel around him and serve tables. That's got a big weight behind it. I mean, the example of Jesus, the word of the Lord's brother, and something inside every minister of the word that wants to meet every need. And they said, no, it would be a tragic, strategic mistake. We will take care of it, but we won't do it. Then I'm sure they were misunderstood by whoever it was that suggested it was right. I'm sure they bore some criticism. But Luke, under the inspiration of God, celebrates their choice with verse 7. And the result of this solution was... That the word of God that hadn't been forsaken or diminished, the word of God 
increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, what does that last phrase mean? Why does he mention the priests? And I don't know the answer, but but this much I think I can say. And, And I can even, I believe, generalize it to our church and the church. Many times the Lord will test a church. Allow some kind of dispute or disappointment or obstacle to the word to arise in the church. And the test is, how will it be handled? Will it be handled either by saying, oh, widows don't count, or we don't need to preach anymore. Widows are all that count. Or will the church, in the wisdom of God, say, widows count, and they must be cared for, and the word counts, it must be preached, prayer must be prayed, and there is a solution that brings the two together, and God, when he sees that solution found, blesses that church with a new breakthrough of outreach. It looks to me like the priests here are mentioned to say, look what more I will do. Because back in chapter 4, verse 1, it was the priests, along with the elders and the scribes, who arrested the apostles, put them in jail. These were hard people to reach. They were vicious enemies of the gospel. And now, many are being converted. Why? Well, the connection in the flow of the book of Acts is the church was faithful in caring for its widows and faithful in caring about the word. And when God saw those two things, he granted a new power, a new effectiveness, a new fruitful with a hard group, an unreached people, sort of. And I think there's much to learn there. And I just pray that God will not leave us out. And my, my suggestion to you at the end of the service today, after the dramatic presentation When our prayer teams gather here at the front, here's what I want you to especially examine yourself about. There are obstacles in all of our lives that are more or less great to the free flow and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit in in bringing priests and disciples and others into the kingdom. And I just want you to ask yourself now, what is it in my life that might stand in the way of Bethlehem's effectiveness and empowerment in this city to gather in these kinds of uh, numbers for the kingdom and for the glory of the Lord and for the good of those who would be gathered. And if the Lord speaks to you now in the rest of this service or has been speaking to you about something that you know, an, an attitude problem between you and somebody or just an obstruction because of the kind of personality you have or something you've been through recently that has just got you all wrapped up inside that you can't seem to be free at all to do what you think God is calling you to do, our teams would just love to uh, put their hand on your shoulder and ask God's deliverance and empowerment and release and blessing in your life. So you think about that and, and pray. Now, here's the way I want to close and make transition into the drama. There's a verse in a hymn. Turn with me to number 672, if you would. It's verse number four of Through All the World. I choose this because it combines a call to care and a call to share the word. The two kinds of threats that had to be overcome. Those who weren't caring for the widows and those who didn't seem to care much 
for the word as they should, this very verse, chapter uh, uh, number 672, verse 4, is a verse that uh, celebrates both of those. Let's stand up and sing that verse together.